For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Eva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. An initiative petition to legalize recreational marijuana will not go before voters in November. The state Supreme Court rejected a request to fast-track the measure, even though it ruled supporters weren't at fault and the election secretary was to blame for delaying it. Ryan is a senior advisor for the group pushing state question 820. What are your thoughts on this decision? Well, just a clarification, Michael. They, they said that it was the Secretary of State's office. Okay, uh, Secretary of yeah, State's the office. Secretary of State's office. But I, you know, I just want to start with the positive here um, because what, what this means is that 820 won't be on the November 2022 ballot, but it's going to be on a ballot. So all of the hard work of the team at state question 820 and the campaign, you know, Michelle, uh, uh, Tilly and Russell Griffin and Dwight Clark and you know uh, you know the number of people that have you know really been working on this. Michelle and I have been working on uh, State Question 820 or what became State Question 820 since 2019. We've gone through a global pandemic. Uh, we've we've had uh, the issue of trying to raise money uh, to get this thing going again. You know we've uh, faced frivolous challenges, petty challenges, politically motivated challenges. Uh, we withstood the longest count of signatures in state history uh, that we're aware of. Um, so all of that hard work is, is not for nothing. Uh, we are going to be on a ballot. Now, whether that ballot is sometime in 2023 or sometime in 2024 by a governor calling a special election or by default on the November 2024 ballot, mm. Oklahomans are going to get to decide on this. And now for the, the not positive side <laughs> of it. By waiting... Uh, we're going to be giving up uh, nearly, if not more than $100 million in additional revenue to the state of Oklahoma. We recently had an economic analysis uh, and fiscal impact uh, uh, statement pre prepared by uh, people that understand this industry and understand you know, the market in Oklahoma and surrounding states. Um, and we're looking at, in year two, nearly $100 million uh, in, in additional revenue. And so the fact that we're waiting isn't without a cost. It's, you know, there, there's that revenue. Tens of thousands of Oklahomans who would be eligible for expedited expungements for low-level marijuana crimes, they're going to have to wait, or they're going to have to pay the you know, $2,500, $5,000 fee to lawyers to try to get it done, where our process would make it very simple and hopefully free. And then finally, uh, people that are traveling through Oklahoma uh, and people in Oklahoma that aren't medical patients like myself that are possessing marijuana or maybe share some marijuana, they're still subject to criminal penalties. They still face criminal jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And so that is a very real uh, consequence of having to wait. Neva. Well, I mean, I think that having to wait sets up for an interesting election, maybe a more interesting election than we would have seen this year with a much more compressed time frame. Um, because what you have is now the opportunity for opponents to the state question to have more time to mobilize, to raise money, and to mount an aggressive campaign if, in fact, that uh, uh, proves to be the case down the road. And I think, you know, when you look at this question of these types of ballot measures, um, we haven't seen this great influx across the country of this uh, uh, real push to legalize marijuana, a recreational marijuana, or even medical marijuana across the country. I mean, we've seen uh, more, uh, certainly more instances where the medical marijuana uh, propositions have been successful. But even, even two years ago, I mean, we had four, I think, four states that passed uh, the legalization of uh, recreational marijuana. 
uh, I think it was uh, South Dakota, Arizona, Montana, and I believe New Jersey. So we're not, you know, we're not seeing this great uptick, I think, across the country. And I think in Oklahoma, uh, it will get down to uh, kind of the same arguments and almost starts with that we saw when we uh, had the debate over whether we should have a state lottery. If, is there going to be this big influx of uh, money into the state coffers that they will be able to use for all of these uh, various programs, projects, and needs? And I think the voters will have to offset that with a, uh, a probably a more complex look. And if you want to pardon the pun, getting into the weeds of the real policy side of this and all of the uh, all of the things that come along in that discussion about uh, uh, is there an uptick in crime? Uh, what are the issues in terms of uh, the federal side considerations where you still have this as a Schedule One drug and on and on? So I think it will be I think it will be fascinating to see. I think time. Will tell and the likelihood who knows I mean we still have a governor's race and a decision to be made on November 8th by the voters that could impact uh, when this uh, election is set as well but for now I think you're right Ryan a lot of effort a lot of time was put in place and I think and I think you have to give uh, credit to the uh, to the justices on the Supreme Court for making it very clear that um, in in stating what the facts were and making it clear how this would move forward, and I think uh, I think that is something that they should be commended on because there was I mean that they've had their plate full, and mm -hmm. I think they've uh, moved through these very significant issues uh, very deliberately and put uh, opinions out that were very clearly stated to the voters and the the citizens of Oklahoma. And absolutely, you know, the state question eight twenty campaign does commend the state supreme court and and their thoughtfulness on this. Of, of course, we're disappointed in the decision but that doesn't mean that we don't respect that decision um, you know at the at the end of the day our, our council you know one of our I was talking about our team one of the folks that I left out Melanie Rigani uh, our legal counsel on this has been with this for you know years and working on this campaign as well um, you know we filed and our an opponents filed a flurry of legal motions and challenges you know throughout the course of this campaign but especially in these last few weeks and the court moved through them very quickly and and they and they didn't just you know do it flippantly they did it thoughtfully and you know again dissatisfied with the result but you know respect the process that got us there the second thing that i would uh point out is that um this is a statutory measure so if the legislature does something you know in 2023 it's going to most likely you know fit like a puzzle piece with state question 820 uh when it passes same thing in 2024 so the legislature has con some control here and then the final thing that i'll mention is that i hope that this upcoming legislative session that we have a real bipartisan conversation, and I've already visited uh, earlier this year with folks in the Secretary of State's office, a real bipartisan conversation about reforms that we can bring uh, to the initiative petition process to ensure that the proponents that are bringing these things and the challengers that want to challenge them have greater certainty, especially with the timeframes involved. The state Supreme Court says a ban on mask mandates is unconstitutional. The high court struck down a portion of legislation allowing the bans only if the governor declared a state of emergency. Justices say by requiring the governor to declare an emergency, it usurps local control in violation of the state constitution. Neva, what kind of impact do you think this ruling will have? Well, I think it makes it clear that uh, the justices very clearly said, and Justice uh, Yvonne Cogger, in her uh, majority opinion that she wrote, she said that local control as you said, Michael, is usurped or impeded by requiring the governor to declare or not declare a state of emergency. So basically, um, I think what we get down to is the statute, uh, uh, the statutes remove 
the school board's authority to act independently and exercise you know, authority that they should have. And uh, it grants, in trying to grant the authority to the governor, it's just not there constitutionally. So I think that question has been resolved. It's something that came up in Oklahoma County District Court and when just uh, District Judge Natalie Mai uh, had this uh, had this come before her and she blocked enforcement of the, the, of the mask mandate, uh, that portion in Oklahoma City Public Schools. So uh, hopefully this issue is resolved. And I think the takeaway is this. It's something we've talked about often on this show, and that is that it's about local control. I mean, we have elected school boards that are there to ensure the best interests of their students, their communities, and be at the center of the real decision-making process. And I think that is, uh, it's incumbent upon voters as they begin to kind of think about these school board elections in the future, how important it is to have folks at the local level that are really uh, involved, engaged, and serious about making these very important decisions as they come up. Right. Well, you know, we're a very young state, you know, a little over 100 years old. And, you know, it's, you know that may seem like, you know, forever ago and, and difficult to imagine. But the, the framing of our Constitution still uh, guides us as Oklahomans today. And Justice Cogger, in, uh, their, uh, in her opinion, said that as much. She said that fearing excessive power in the hands of one individual, the framers of the Oklahoma Constitution, uh, intentionally created a weak state chief executive. And if you look at the dynamics of what was happening around the time that Oklahoma was uh, evolving from, you know, one, from multiple territories to one territory to a, to a state, um, you know, both in Oklahoma and around the nation, uh, we were seeing just a, a raft of corruption uh, and, and, you know, public servants using their positions to, uh, uh, to invoke either their political will or to try to uh, benefit financially from the political systems that they controlled. And so the Constitution that we have in the state of Oklahoma is really a reflection of that time and the framers' effort to try to curb that corruption and try to curb the ability of any one person to be able to operate. And so we have checks and balances in Oklahoma that go well beyond the checks and balances that exist even in the federal Constitution, and, and this is certainly one of them. And so, you know, if you if you want to be in the legislature, you run for the legislature. If you want to be the governor, you you, you you run for governor, uh, and that's and that's what it is. If you're the chief executive governor of Oklahoma, your job is to faithfully execute the laws. And what this did is it put the governor in a position where the governor or any governor, not just this governor, but any governor moving forward, uh, would be able to legislate, be able to say, um, you know, this is the policy that I'm going to enact by virtue of either declaring or not declaring a state of emergency. Um, and I think that, you know, this is absolutely the right opinion, uh, you know, regardless of kind of the result in the context of COVID. I think historically in Oklahoma, you know, this is an important opinion in terms of um, you know, really trying to rein in the executive branch of government in Oklahoma. We've seen in uh, recent years where uh, Governor Stitt has tried to expand the power of the governor's office. And, you know, I think, you know, many looking at that will say, you know, those those efforts have led to some consequences that we don't necessarily like. And we, we whether you want Kevin Stitt to have that or Joy Hoffmeister or or any governor in the future of Oklahoma, uh, I think that the fact that we have a weak governor and a weak executive in Oklahoma is an important part of who we are. Well, and the state, and not only did the Supreme Court, um, they struck down a portion of a Senate bill that had passed, was signed into law, took effect uh, July uh, of last year, 
And I think when you when you take the kind of broader look, I mean, it's important for lawmakers to uh, to pay very close attention to the fact that mm-hmm. they don't need to be in conflict. They don't need to be uh, passing uh, issues, passing legislation where it is clearly an unconstitutional delegation of authority. And so I think the the Supreme Court's given them a roadmap on some of this that they need to uh, take a serious look at. And I think the other takeaway from this that should be mentioned is the fact that all of this came as the result of a suit that was filed by doctors, parents, and the Oklahoma State Mm -hmm. Medical Association, where they took on the state of Oklahoma and the governor and wanted this resolved uh, in in the courts. So uh, this would probably have been a moot point. I mean, until someone brought it forward and challenged it to the to the level that it went, ultimately to the Supreme Court to, to render their opinion, uh, we would uh, probably have this out there flying around and, and unresolved for some future uh, issue that might occur a year from now or a decade from well, now. And that's right. You know, the, the principle of this is probably even more important because, you know, the idea that we're going to be in it, and who knows, you know, I'm saying that we're some wood to knock on uh, in the studio. <laughs> no, there's no wood in here. I'm sorry, <laughs> listeners. Uh, but the idea that any governor would be declaring a state of emergency for COVID-19 uh, right now just seems like, you know, that's not going to happen again. And so, you know, the, the triggering part of this law may not ever uh, you know, create a situation where the governor could execute that or, or could use that power delegated unconstitutionally to the governor's office. But you know, the principle, though, it remains the same, whether it's this law or any other law. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Joy Hoffmeister is calling for a $5,000 pay raise for Oklahoma teachers. Hoffmeister plans to include the raises in her proposed Department of Education budget and make it a central part of her campaign against incumbent Governor Kevin Stitt. Ryan, do you think this could influence the race? I got to tell you, I was, I was really confused by this because, you know, all of the education conversations that we've had so far in 2022 in Oklahoma really seem to be about banned books or about indoctrinating kids or, you know, grooming children. Uh, you know, we, we haven't really talked about, you know, teachers at all. I and mean, we've, we've had this education conversation that's left out the real bulk of education policy. And that's, you know, students first and foremost, uh, teachers and then parents uh, and the communities that surround them and the support staff that make those schools uh, work and operate. So uh, the fact that Joy Hoffmeister is saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to have that conversation. I'm going to have a conversation about investing in our teachers. Uh, Joy Hoffmeister has said you know, that we did get the $7,000 pay raise a few years ago, but we're still falling behind. I mean, you, you can't just do that and be done. You know, I know for a fact I've watched uh, teachers in schools that my children have attended uh, leave. Uh, and they, where have they gone? They've gone to Texas. Uh, they've gone to other states where they can get paid more money. They can have better uh, benefits and, and you know, potentially exist under more local control and less at the uh, whims of you know, state political actors. So you know, I, I really like this you know, bread and butter. Like you know, we got we to gotta pay our teachers if we're going to get them there. We have an enormous teacher shortage. <clears throat> There's a state impact story on KOSU that listeners probably caught sometime this week. Um, but we need to get to that point. We need to talk about just the, the basics here, paying our teachers, uh, getting literacy rates back up, um, you know, making sure that air conditioners work in our schools. I know that it's, it's September, but it was 100 degrees this week. And we had, you know, my, my daughter came home from school and I said, did you have any... Thing interesting at school she said well one crazy thing is that it got really hot uh, <laughs> so you know I think that you know those are the kind of bread and butter education issues that voters are just desperate to hear uh, on the campaign trail right now Neva. Well, it is clear that Joy Hoffmeister, being the, being the uh, superintendent of public instruction, uh, 
an educator by background, is going to make this a focus of her campaign. And I think uh, it's not a surprise that uh, this is something that does resonate with voters. I mean, we always see it as the number one or number two issue mm -hmm. in the minds of voters, education. Uh, when we talk about teacher pay, I mean, there's no question that uh, even though we have an average, I think, of uh, just under 55000 for uh, teacher teacher pay that's ten thousand under the national and uh, it's uh, when you take into account that first year teachers it's somewhere around thirty six thousand uh, these are the issues that are uh, really clogging the clogging the system and impacting in terms of not only being able to get teachers the fact that we have these significant numbers of uh, emergency uh, certificates still being is issued by necessity and the fact that there's been I think an eighty percent drop in enrollment in our mm -hmm. colleges and universities in the last decade of folks uh, wanting to go into the teaching profession. So it's a big conversation. It's not just a political conversation. It's something that every local school district is impacted by. We go back to the conversation about local control, local impact, and what it does uh, to the parents and the teachers and the communities in terms of being able to uh, address these issues that are so significant. I think uh, this is a uh, this is a major kind of debate point out there. The governor, you know, points to his his record, the things he uh, believes that he's done, including a, a teacher pay raise uh, after the legislature uh, uh, had the uh, uh, the issues surrounding the two week walkout or strike, as some people would call it, uh, back in 2018. Uh, these are all these are all issues that I think the voters are kind of going to look at a composite view of all of that and determine what they want to see in terms of going forward and which one of these two um, major candidates, uh, the uh, governor and Joy Hoffmeister, uh, which match their views in terms of what they'd like to see in the future. Just a you know, legitimate question, and uh, maybe one of you know, maybe one of our listeners knows, but you know, one of the things that Governor Stitt's campaign uh, heralded as one of his accomplishments was the creation of this a program where the best teachers could compete for six-figure, $100,000-plus salaries. Uh, I just, I would be really interested to know if there are any, you know, classroom teachers out there in the state of Oklahoma that have been the beneficiary of this program and are being paid $100,000-plus. Uh, I mean, I know that there are administrators out there making that much money, uh, but have any teachers uh, actually benefited from that? You know, it's interesting, too. One of the things that uh, Hoffmeister talked about uh, this week to some reporters was the fact that she would extend the Oklahoma Promise Scholarship Program, something highly touted, very successful, very bipartisan and in support. Uh, she would extend that program to children uh, or dependents of Oklahoma teachers, no matter what their household income level. So talk mm -hmm. about way, throwing something else mm -hmm. on the table that gets uh, the attention of folks in schools across the state of Oklahoma. This is certainly a topic that I think we'll see some more discussion in the next six weeks. A legislative panel is recommending more than a billion dollars in COVID-19 relief spending on 45 projects. The Joint Committee on Pandemic Relief Funding made the recommendation for lawmakers to take up on the chamber floors when they meet next week. The money will go to investments in broadband infrastructure, workforce development, water upgrades, and physical and behavioral health needs. Neva, what do you think of this spending package? Well, I think, first of all, when you consider that we're talking about uh, almost $2 billion in ARPA money, I mean, this is money that's going to be infused into the state 
into such a wide variety of programs, projects, uh, and needs that, frankly, would have been decades and decades uh, away from be ever being met in a state budget or any other, you know, special funding. So the fact that uh, originally I think they had something like 1,400 uh, uh, proposals that were submitted through the portal, uh, others that obviously lawmakers uh, have brought on alongside that, the fact that there were $18 billion, I think, was the figure that uh, legislators were talking about, $18 billion worth of requests, and now to hone it down to uh, being able to uh, start giving out, uh, allocating these monies, which have to be done before uh, the end of 2024, and then they have to be uh, uh, supposed, or supposed to at least at this point, be uh, spent by 2026. I think most people believe that that, that uh, date certainly will be extended out across the country, mm -hmm. because this was a $2 trillion, just under Two trillion dollars uh, was the total package that uh, that Congress appropriated uh, across the country, and I think um, I think we'll watch with great interest. The lawmakers will be back in next Wednesday for three days, uh, uh, try to move this through and uh, get a conclusion in terms of getting these funds uh, allocated where they where they want them to go. Uh, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of hard work uh, through the summer uh, in a very I think bipartisan, largely bipartisan fashion, to be able to uh, work through these different uh, whether it's at the whether it's universities, whether it's mental health, whether it's infrastructure, broadband, uh, waste treatment, water projects, you name it. It runs a long, long list, and I think that uh, at the end of it, most folks are going to walk away and say probably the vast majority of big-ticket projects that needed to be addressed at least had their time at the table and, and walked away with some opportunity for some funding. Right. You know, early on in this, <clears throat> early on in this entire project, Senator Senator Kay Floyd, the Democratic leader in the the Oklahoma State Senate, she said that this is a once in a generation opportunity, uh, and it really is. I mean, if if you look at these kinds of investments that we're making. Um, you know, Neva, you mentioned wastewater. You talked to, you know, whenever I was in the legislature, I represented a lot of small towns. Mm -hmm. And the, the number one thing that you would talk to, you know, if they were big enough to have a city manager, uh, you know, the <laughs> thing that they would talk to you about was their water treatment and their wastewater management. And you oftentimes as a legislator, I wanted to help them out, but you just kind of throw your hands up because even if I were able to, you know, go to the legislature and get a one-time appropriation for a wastewater treatment upgrade somewhere, well, it's probably just going to be a patchwork thing. And then if I'm trying to do it, well, then three other legislators are going to say, well, what about my uh, towns? And so what ended up happening is just stalemate. Nothing ever gets done. And so we've had just critical infrastructure breakdown in these small communities that is a real public uh, public health uh, situation that has, you know, frankly, uh, it's surprising that it hasn't been worse than it uh, than it's been. So these investments are critical. You know, the, the outpatient center at Stevenson Cancer Center in, in Tulsa, I mean, the, the effect that impact that that's going to have on lives for, you know, decades to come uh, is just, you know, just hard to even uh, wrap your arms around in terms of how beneficial that will be. All of this was, all of this consideration by the legislature was part of the legislature's decision uh, back in May uh, to say, you know, to take this out of the governor's uh, office where, where it was exclusively prior to this. The governor's office had been vetting and then saying, you know, yes or no to these projects. And the legislature said, well, we, we want a, a bigger role in that. And so you began to hear committee hearings and some of these proposals were aired out loud. And, you know, I think that the package that we've got right now that they're going to be considering next week is one that I think all Oklahomans can be proud of. And, you know, we will 
Um, you know, I, I feel like politics right now is just minute to minute, maybe even second to second. Uh, and, and it's really difficult to think about long term change. Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, one time whenever uh, I visited uh, uh, Paris and you got to see the Notre Dame Cathedral and you realized that it took generations of people to build that. You know, the people that started building that were dead before it was done. Mm-hmm. And I think that these are the kinds of projects that will outlast us, outlive us. And, it, and it's a gift that we that we uh, have to give to our next generation so that they uh, can be you know, even better than we are. And so I'm, I'm really excited about this. And when you think about projects, even mental health projects, I mean, right. one of the things that's in this package is $87 million for uh, a new psychi- state psychiatric hospital, uh, taking down Griffin Memorial in, in Norman, building a new state-of-the-art facility with an additional 100 beds beyond what they have now, uh, a psychiatric uh, children's uh, uh, expansion and hospital, uh, I think, with OU Children's, uh, something long talked about and much needed, uh, those beds. Uh, so we're seeing projects like that. And then you see kind of these small, what would be relatively smaller projects, 35 million, I think, but something that you couldn't just, you know, find that laying around in anybody's budget that the uh, city of Oklahoma City uh, wanted and needed for uh, assisting in moving or relocating a water transmission line so that Tinker could expand. And I mean, Tinker, number one largest employer in the state of Oklahoma, um, it, that's a that's a significant need and something that now will immediately be able uh, to be met if this is part of uh, the proposal that uh, we see passed next week uh, as kind of what I would call an omnibus uh, ARPA uh, program that uh, that these lawmakers have have uh, spent, as I say, a great deal of time working through. And we'll both get calls from Representative Logan Phillips if we don't mention broadband investment and expansion. Yes, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the marquee thing that, that is part of this. So just mentioning well, that right think, now, we can come back to it on a later is, show, but it's I, huge. It, it is significant yeah. because even, even Roger Thompson, Senator Thompson said that this was the number one issue. I mean, if you wanted to start from the top and say what was the number one issue that people, as they talked to them at every level, wanted was broadband. And this particular uh, package, the way they've got it designed, they believe that they can have 95% of the state of Oklahoma mm-hmm. having broadband uh, before 2025. So that's a game changer across mm-hmm. the state and something, you're right, that needs to be applauded for the effort. The State Department of Human Services is promising grants to help fill child care deserts in Oklahoma. New daycares in 34 counties can get $10,000 per child if they open in places where there aren't enough child care providers to meet the needs of working families. Ryan, what do you think of this decision by DHS? I think it's really exciting. I think that it, it fills a real need that, that people are feeling right now as they're trying to get back out into the workforce. And, uh, you know, even if you're working from home, the ability, especially if you've got a small child, you're not really working from home uh, if, if you've got an infant in the next room or, or a toddler in the next room. And just you know, being able to get them out and get them socialized. So those are those are, I think, you know, very important uh, byproducts of this. And uh, it's but, you know, you shouldn't have to choose between living in Oklahoma City uh, where you might have access greater access to day t- daycare or living in a smaller town or rural Oklahoma and, you know, having to t- sacrifice that as a part of living there. I mean, that's just, you know, it, you shouldn't have to do that. Uh, so I think that this is important. You know, looking at it, you know, I, I read one of uh, reading the story uh, about this. Uh, there, I think it was in the Oklahoma, and the uh, there was a, a, a child care 
uh, service provider that was already in existence. And, and uh, she said that she wouldn't be eligible for this, but she was grateful that there were going to be more facilities for kids to get placed in. You know, part of me thinks we need to be doing something for those folks that have been out there uh, because those, those child care centers, they have been through it in the last few years. Uh, and they, you know, just like our schools, you know, those child care centers have had to deal with, you know, ups and downs of COVID. Uh, and, you know, now we're dealing with, you know, uh, you know, a, a brand new economy post COVID. And so I think that, you know, maybe if there's something that we could do for those existing child care providers to make sure that they don't go out of business uh, and they're able to continue to provide quality services, you know, maybe that's uh, something that they could look at next. And that was one of the things, I mean, that in that article, I read the same article, I think she had been in business 42 years. Yeah. And, and one of the things that she pointed out was how many people went out of the business mm-hmm. during the pandemic, uh, during COVID, they were, they were, they, the doors were closed. And so they didn't come back afterwards. And now we have this great gap, this great need in 34 counties, I think, that have been specifically named uh, where the where individuals that want to start a business, want to start one of these uh, uh, child care businesses can apply for the grant. The grant, this $10,000, I think uh, it's interesting. You get $5,000 once your grant is approved, but you don't get the other $5,000 mm-hmm. until a year later. So you've got to pr- you've got to uh, be able to prove sustainability. You've got mm-hmm. to be able to prove that you can get through DHS licensing and you can maintain and do the things that are required uh, for any uh, child care provider in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, hopefully it'll fill some of those gaps and needs, particularly in some of these smaller rural communities that have been struggling uh, and folks have not been able to uh, sustain those types of businesses. Um, and then we'll see if this is something that, uh, if it is wildly successful, perhaps, as you say, Ryan, things can be looked at that will uh, look at the bigger picture of those folks that have been in, uh, that are not just startups now, mm-hmm. or wanting to be startups, but the people that have been there and have an excellent record of providing this service to uh, uh, families in the state of Oklahoma. Can you imagine the generations of kids that a child care worker has seen if they've been in business for 42 oh, years? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, that's that's pretty yeah. cool. And she said she had a waiting list. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. she's not looking. I mean, she doesn't view this as competition. She sees the clear need that there is need for more uh, folks like her out there doing doing the work that she's doing. And maybe something like this will reduce that waiting list and actually give mm-hmm. give her more business as well. Yeah. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KLSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KLSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KLSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at klsu.org.